Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted December 18, 2018, titled Virgin Mary, Miracle or Misunderstanding, featuring Digital Hammurabi. No Christmas pageant would be complete without a Virgin Mary at the center of the scene. But this familiar detail about Jesus' life isn't mentioned in the eight New Testament books scholars agree were written first, seven of the letters of Paul and the Gospel of Mark. The concept of Immaculate Conception first appears in writing in the Gospel of Matthew, probably penned around 70 AD. More than any Gospel writer, the author of Matthew very deliberately wants to connect the life of Jesus to themes in the Old Testament. To the author of Matthew, the nativity story was prophecy-fulfilling. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's quoting Isaiah 7.14. In the NIV, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Interesting that there is a footnote associated with the word virgin here, but let's not get distracted just yet. Now in Isaiah 7, the Jewish nation was still divided into two kingdoms, not unlike Korea is today, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. In this chapter, Israel had formed an alliance with the foreign power Samaria. So God sent his servant Isaiah to warn the king of Judah with a promise of a sign that God would protect them. This sign of a son that is further described in the next verses. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. We don't hear that part in the Christmas pageants. The Bible records that this sign was fulfilled a few verses later in Isaiah 8 verses 3 to 4. A child of very natural conception is born to Isaiah, and the enemies of Judah were vanquished before he spoke his first words. Given that the passage is very much a self-contained narrative story that makes no mention at all of the future Messiah, one might wonder why the Christians view this passage as prophetic, when Jewish rabbis certainly did not. Indeed, some Christians do enjoy citing parallels as if they are prophecies, but how did this prediction that was satisfactorily fulfilled with a very natural conception in the Old Testament come to be extrapolated to require a miraculous conception in the future. Which brings us back to that footnote on Isaiah 7.14. It indicates that in this context, virgin might actually mean young woman in the original Hebrew. If this is a messianic prophecy, why did the translators feel necessary to acknowledge another interpretation? While the Gospel of Matthew, along with the entire New Testament, was written in Greek, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. As such, when the author of Matthew included quotations from the Old Testament, he used a Greek translation known as the Septuagint, much like an English writer today would use the King James, ESV, NIV, or some other translation rather than the Hebrew text directly. In the Septuagint, the noun used to reference the woman in Isaiah 7.14 is Parthenos, which generally, 
though not always, means virgin, specifically describing a woman who has not yet had sexual relations. But if one goes back to the original Hebrew source, the word found there is Alma, which is not the specific word for virgin. Now, I'm not an expert in ancient Greek and Hebrew, but Dr. Joshua Bowen from Digital Hammurabi is. He has a PhD from John Hopkins University, specializing in Hebrew, other ancient languages, and the ancient Near East. Dr. Josh, what do these words mean? Much ink has been spilled on the use of the Hebrew word Alma in Isaiah 7.14. Does it mean virgin? Does it mean young woman? If it only means young woman, why was the Greek word parthenos, virgin, used to translate it? As we all know, words in any language have a range of meaning. The word run can indicate anything from a slow jog to an all-out sprint, depending on the context. Words in ancient Hebrew and Greek are no different. The Hebrew word alma generally means young woman or girl, while the word betula generally means virgin. The Greek word parthenos, used in Isaiah 7.14 to translate alma, generally means virgin and is commonly used to translate betula, virgin, into Greek. Although these words generally carry these meanings, context can often nuance the way they should be understood and translated. There are instances when betula cannot mean virgin, and the same can be said of parthenos. For example, in Genesis 24, the word parthenos is used to translate the Hebrew words na'ara, young girl, betula, and alma, all in the same context, where it should likely be understood as simply young woman. In short, context must drive the meaning of a particular word. It's possible, of course, that the translator of Isaiah 7.14 intentionally used the Greek word parthenos to add a theological layer to the passage. However, given the range of meaning that parthenos has, we need not assume that this was an intentional interpretive translation. Thanks, Dr. Josh. If you're not familiar with Digital Hammurabi, please find their channel link in the description for highly entertaining, enlightening, and accessible videos on all aspects of the ancient Near East. So, for whatever the reason may have been, the Septuagint translator of Isaiah chose Parthenos to translate Alma. He chose a word that usually means virgin to translate a word that sometimes means virgin. Not technically wrong, but perhaps a touch imprecise. If Isaiah had wanted to be clear about this virgin factor, he could have and should have used Bethula instead. Jump ahead to the world of the first century, shortly after the death of Jesus, and the stories about him being the Messiah are spreading. The Greek speakers of the day are looking at prophecies in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament and innocently interpreting the plain reading of Isaiah as an unfulfilled promise of a virgin birth. Is it possible that in a well-meaning effort to bolster the claims that Jesus was the Messiah, that the author of Matthew, or perhaps earlier oral traditions, exaggerated the birth story of Jesus to line up with this ambiguous Greek translation? After all, this idea is never mentioned by the earlier writings of Paul nor in the earlier written Gospel of Mark. It has all the markings of a late addition to the story. If so, it wouldn't be the first time the author of Matthew was tripped up by being unfamiliar with Hebrew. All four Gospels reference Zechariah 9.9 in relation to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Three of the four Gospels recognize the Hebrew poetic convention known as synonymous parallelism, where a line of text will restate what is in the previous line with slightly different wording for emphasis or dramatic effect. So if three of the four Gospels have Jesus arriving at Jerusalem on a single animal, 
a colt. However, the author of Matthew got confused, and in a clear effort to make sure that Jesus correctly fulfilled the prophecy as he misunderstood it, invented a second animal for Jesus to ride in chapter 21. The idea of Jesus straddling both an adult donkey and a colt at the same time must have made for a humorous image, but the author of Matthew would stop at no lengths to ensure that he could make these connections. Not only does it seem he invented a whole animal, in Matthew 27, the author quotes Zechariah 11.3, while mistakenly attributing it to the prophet Jeremiah. This is an author more interested in connecting the dots between Jesus and the Old Testament than he is about being accurate. Imagine there was an old document that said in Spanish, In that town lives a yellow-haired woman who makes delicious bread. And there was also a later translation of this document, which colorfully phrased it, In that town lives a blonde chick who makes delicious bread. Then, far in the future, with current slang out of vogue, a new author wanted to affirm this tale of his understanding of the blonde chick, and so elaborates with the story of a miraculous chicken, who, despite having no hands, could not only bake bread, but this chicken-prepared bread was the best in the whole kingdom. Should future historians look at these documents and conclude that in fact a literal chicken was an excellent baker? Or should they at least consider the idea that something had gone awry in interpretation? Look, it's possible that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth. But if you're honest, isn't it at least equally likely that early, highly motivated Christians exaggerated a story to help explain a poor translation? Think about it. If you'd like to spark some interesting conversations with friends and family this season, why not share this video with someone who may not be aware of this Virgin Mary controversy? Where do you land? Miracle or misunderstanding? Let me know in the comments. Merry Christmas.